Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open up your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 13 as we continue our study of the book of beginnings, literally what Genesis, the word means, beginnings. And we're studying the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're starting with Abraham, and we're picking up the story this week with Genesis chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 1 to 18, the whole of the chapter. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Excuse me. So here we have the account of the separation of Lot and of Abram. Lot was Abram's nephew, the son of his late brother Haran, who died back in Ur of the Chaldees. And from the previous history, we know that Abram has been a father to Lot. So Lot would be like an adoptive son to Abram. Abram took him on his journeys, and he lived under Abram's support and protection. And we particularly see that in this part of the history where there's great kindness demonstrated by Abram towards Lot. Abram went back up to the Negev from which he had departed for Egypt a short time earlier. You remember that Abram had been 
down in Egypt because he was escaping a severe famine up in the Negev, this arid uh, desert-like region. A famine hit it, so he went down to Egypt where there were waters of the Nile that kept the crops constant down there. But when he got down there, he lied and said that his uh, wife, Sarai, who was very beautiful, was his sister. And sure enough, the kingdom informed him I mean, informed, excuse me. Sure enough, the men of the kingdom informed the king, Pharaoh, that uh, this beautiful new woman had come. And so Pharaoh brought it into his household. Abram had lied, said it was his sister. Immediately, a plague came from God against the household of Pharaoh. We don't know how Pharaoh found out uh, that that it was because of Sarai. And so Pharaoh got very upset, and he expelled Abram and Sarai from his kingdom and so we're picking up the story with them being pushed out him confronting Abram about having lied having made him commit adultery by his law he expels them and now we're picking up the story as Abram travels back to the land he left because of the famine and so we pick up the account of them returning to the land and then of the separation of Lot and his nephew Abram, who, as I said, was like an adoptive son to him. Now, verse 1 says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now, what belonged to Abram? Why is this little phrase added, he and his wife and all that belonged to him? Well, because it was a retinue. It was a huge amount. It was like, uh, we know later that 300 servants went out as an army with Abram. Remember that? 300 servants. He was able to marshal an army of 300. So this was a large group of people that were with Abram. But then also, because we see in verse 2, what does it say? It says, now Abram was very rich in in livestock, in silver and in gold. And so this is another reason why it uses the phrase, Abram not only had a large group of people, but he also had large flocks, and then he also had financial assets. This is the first mention of any financial assets on the part of the patriarchs. And this would have made him stable, not as vulnerable to to attacks, and also not as vulnerable to famine, because he would have been able to use these financial assets, even if his livestock were in jeopardy, he would have had the silver and gold to negotiate for food. And so there's coming a stability to him, and almost certainly this is a result of him having been down in Egypt, because we read that when the Israelites left Egypt, you remember after the, after the final plague, the killing of the firstborn of every household, you remember it says that God commanded them in Exodus 12, 35, the sons of Israel had had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And so when the Israelites left Egypt, they left also with silver and gold. So this is a presage of what's going to come with the Israelites, when they leave, here's Abram, he leaves with silver and gold, and likely that's where it came from, was down in Egypt. So we're talking about a dude that's extremely wealthy, okay? He has a lot of wealth. This is a man of means, very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Now, when it says very rich, what should we make of this? Is it a scandal for a patriarch, a father of the church, 
Someone that Romans tells us, he is our father, our father of the faith. Is it a scandal for him to be rich? And one of the questions that we have to ask when we think about Abram being rich is, what were his riches? And so, for instance, if we see that, um, that God blessed Abram with riches, and that's the understanding of Scripture, that because of God's relationship with Abram, he blessed him with riches, then we want to say, okay, well, why did God bless him? Well, because Abram belonged to him. Well, how did he bless him? Well, he blessed him with riches. Well, what were the riches? And so then we come up with silver and gold, and we say, well, are those things bad for Abram to possess? And the answer is no. You know, we all use money, right? I don't think I have any metal, but I've got cash and I've got credit cards. You know, Doug always tells us that credit cards are, are like cash, all right? So he's got silver and gold, and then he's got animals, and who can object to animals, right? Animals are healthy things to have, right? You know, dogs, cats, cows, moo, oxen, goats, sheep. They give us wool, they give us meat, they give us milk. So you can't object, but then, what am I not mentioning? Many, many, no, no, I'm not going to mention chickens. They don't constitute animals. Chickens are foul. <laughs> I'm not mentioning their manservants and maidservants. Now, why am I staring at you? Well, I'm staring at you because the minute I mention manservants and maidservants, we go into high gear judging God and judging Abraham. You know, because nobody should have manservants and maidservants. And so, because I'm sensitive to the Love Bloomington campaign, and, and I want all of you who are here for the first time to feel like you've just come home to an easy chair. You know, which is the way you should feel in church. You should feel safe. I'm just going to skip right over the manservants and maidservants, right? And just let that one percolate a little bit. But that's not what I'm going to do because I want you to understand you cannot live halfway between the world and God. Either your brain submits to God or your brain submits to the world, but you cannot live halfway between, and that's where we always want to live. We always want to live as close to the world as we can without giving up our claim to belong to God. Right? And so let's think a little bit, a little bit about manservants and maidservants. The minute we know that Scripture says that Pharaoh gave Abram many male and female servants, and that's what it said when we studied last week. The minute we hear that, what we think was these were men and women attached to Abram's household in some way whose work was given in exchange for food and protection. So I used to be a manservant in, a, in an extremely rich home, right? Five alarm systems, infrared, you know, magnetic, 
you know, little buttons hidden behind sofas and behind drapes that you push panic and the cops were there like that. You know, I mean, this place was like mind-boggling. And I was a manservant. And the lady of the house who ran the aquarium and her husband ran a hospital downtown and she, they were blue bloods. And she, and I was 30-something, I had, I had a child, I was married, I was in graduate school, and she called me what? She called me boy. I remember in the basement hearing her say, is the boy here yet? All right. So should I have been offended? So when we come to hearing that Abram had manservants and maidservants, immediately the questions we have is, this, this is a great hero of the church? This is a father of the godly? This is a man who knew God and he had manservants and maidservants. And then we go through this little routine where we think to ourselves, well, but this was in the ancient world. This was back in patriarchal times. These were in times where they didn't have the benefit of William Wilberforce and William Lloyd Garrison and, you know, all, all these things that have taught us that the absolute, the absolute irreducible necessity for a life not, that's worth living is that you, that you are self-determined. You know? Now listen, when I worked for Miss, well, I won't name her, but when I worked for the lady of this house, I, my life was not self-determined. Okay, I hate, I hate to tell you this, but my life was not self-determined. I did once refuse to have drinks with the man of the house, and that was dicey. But I knew that I needed to keep the levels straight. And that if I had a drink with him, I would cross those levels, right? Okay? And so when we had another child, and I fell a little behind on the leaves in the front yard, as she left the house one day, she stopped her Audi, and she said to me, the window went down, and she said, Timothy, the leaves need to be cleaned up. And I said, my wife just had a baby, and she said, I, I have to think of how she actually said this. I think what she said was, she, I, she didn't actually say, I don't care about that, but she said something that was a, a circumlocution, you know, for I don't care about that. And she said, but the leaves are to be cleaned up, you know, and I never fell behind on my work there, all right? The place always looked perfect. So she had two and a half years of the place looking perfect by this time. So now none of you are feeling sorry for me, right? Because why? Well, because I'm white. I'm not Hispanic. I'm not Asian. I'm not black. I'm white. And so you think, oh, well, you know, it was a trip that you did for a while while you were in seminary. I mean, grow up, right? But then we look at Abram and we say, how could, how could this be? Oh, he lived in an ancient patriarchal time and... Back then, nobody knew that you should be self-determined. Nobody knew that the essence of personhood was self-determination. And so if somebody had come to those servants and explained to them that what they needed was an emancipation proclamation, then, you know, things could have developed and progressed a lot earlier than they did in history. And this is the way we handle Scripture all the time. We come to Scripture with our cultural conceptions of what is right and wrong, 
We superimpose them on Scripture. We judge Scripture by them. We judge the people in Scripture by them. And then we go into the la-la land of, well, you know, that's an anachronism. I can't expect that out of ancient patriarchal people, you see? And so we think, well, Abram was godly in so much, let's cut him slack in manservants and maidservants. Do you see this? And we're doing this all the time in Scripture. We're all the time judging Jesus, absolutely judging Jesus. I had a president of Dubuque Seminary once say to me about feminism, he said, well, you know, Jesus couldn't violate the principles of feminism because of the culture at his time. And I said, you got to be kidding me, dude. I didn't say it like that. His name was Doctor, you know. And I said, you look at Jesus, and it seems to me like he goes through his whole life violating every single principle that's precious to his culture. So much so, he ends up being crucified by them. And you're telling me he just couldn't summon the courage to say no to feminism? Or, I mean, not to feminism, to, to patriarchy? You know, to, to, to male leadership? This is ludicrous, and yet this is what we do. We always give, we cut slack to the people in Scripture. We judge them. Don't, mind you, you judge them. We judge them. And then we say, but you know, they lived in an ancient patriarchal kind. They lived in an ancient manservant, maidservant time. They lived in an ancient meat-eating carnival time. And we never stop feeling superior to everybody in the Bible. There's Paul that we feel superior to. There's Jesus. Yeah, you do feel superior to Jesus. You really do. For instance, a lot of you don't think that you should ever confront anybody with direct language. And then you read Jesus saying, you know, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you go across heaven and earth to win a single convert, and then you turn up into twice the son of hell you are yourselves. And we go, well, you know, I mean, Jesus, Jesus ha- had to deal with the culture on the terms of engagement that they had at that time. But if he were in the Facebook world, he would never be that direct. I mean, it just doesn't play well on Facebook. <laughs> you know? Can't you just imagine how many likes Jesus would get on Facebook? <laughs> it's just hilarious. You know, Jesus would all of a sudden start speaking in, in, in ten-word epithets. I came to bring grace to the graceless. Tweet from Jesus. Yesterday I came to bring grace to the broken. Tweet from Jesus. Tomorrow I shall bring grace to the graceless. Tweet from Jesus. I mean, people, come on, let's let's all soften up and admit this is our lives. And we look at Jesus and we see him speaking directly and we think, well, you know, that's Jesus. They were really wicked and he had to wake them up. And then we look at Paul and we say, well, Paul was single. And what do you expect from a single man? You know? And then we look at Abram and, and we just, we live in two worlds. We live in the world of accepting grace and the blood of Jesus on the one hand and condemning every other aspect of Scripture on the other hand. We'll take the grace, we'll take the blood, but I don't want nothing else. 
because those people were so ancient. And ancient is not a positive word, <laughs> you know? And we don't go around saying, oh, man, dude, that's ancient. <laughs> you know? And so here he is, this poor man. He doesn't know he's going to be judged by us, but he is. And he has manservants and maidservants. Now, I want to give you a little help in thinking this through. Our questions for Abram, when we see that his riches included manservants and maidservants, are questions like this. How could they have servants? Did these people like... All right, okay. Did these people, like, belong to Abram? Right? I mean, you all understand the question. I mean, like, did they belong to Abram? Did they get time and a half for working on Labor Day? Did they have an appeals process for age discrimination? Did they have a pension plan and health insurance, and were the female servants allowed to join the men when they went out to battle? Come on, laugh. These are the questions we ask of them. Or was the expectation that the women would stay back home and, like, clean the bathroom and vacuum the living room and change the diapers and nurse the babies? Note that the questions that we ask today are not questions about the spiritual freedom and godliness that attended these servants' lives because they were under the authority of a godly man. Do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is the world does not encourage us to think of the spiritual blessings that came to the men and women that Pharaoh had given Abram because they were under God's chosen son, Abram. The world simply wants us to feel the offense that they had to leave their native Egypt and go off with this man to whom they had been given. And the reason for that is that the world does not believe in the immortality of the soul. And the world does not believe in fearing God. The world does not believe in sin. The world does not believe that there will be a judgment following death. And the world does not believe that eternity will be determined by the dispensations of their life, whether they are under godliness or not. The world does not care about those things because the world is materialist. The world only cares about what the circumstances of, are of our lives today. And so it's immaterial to the world whether these servants were under a godly man. All that matters to the world is what? Self-determination. That's the world. The world only cares. The world says a self-determined, a life that's not self-determined is not worth living. That's what the world says. And so if you choose to be in bondage, it doesn't matter about the bondage. What matters is that you made the choice. Because then you're self-determined. 
And we do this kind of thing all through our reading of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture, the study of Scripture. When we pray, we do this kind of thing, where we just assume the ideological commitments of our culture, and we superimpose them on Scripture, we judge Scripture by them, and then we make this you know, this, this burp that takes us all over the tension that there is in these things to Jesus and his blood and grace. And that's it. That's all we take of Scripture, and we judge all the rest of it. And so what is Christian faith? What is biblical faith? Who is Abram? Is Abram a rich man? Do his riches include financial assets? Do they include animals? Should a human being, I mean, you know, 10 or 20 years, the whole question is good. Not going to be the question of whether the veal is kept outside of the sun in a tiny little thing where they can't move, right? The question is going to be, should any man own any animal? And so in a few years, we're going to be judging Abraham because he had livestock. The world's not going to stop judging God and his order. The world just loves to judge God and to say everything he did, every choice he made, every distinction that he let down from the world is evil and we won't stop until we're done with them. And so we look at Abram and we see his life, we see his riches, we see that he owned animals, we see that he had manservants and maidservants. And then, you know, we see him coming into a land of Canaan. And, you know, honestly, what, you know what you're going to say about him coming into the Canaanites' land? What are you going to say? School's taught you, you know what to say. Well, what about the natives? What about the, the in, you know, the word, right? Should we say it? What about the... It, it, the indigenous people. And God says, I'm going to give you this land. And we just, we just burp right over it. Well, that's okay. That's ancient patriarchal times, and that's a patriarchal God. But God, God has progressed since then. You know, God doesn't deal with indigenous people like that anymore, and neither do missionaries. My God, I hope we don't deal with indigenous missionaries like that anymore. You know? And pretty soon, no Christian will have a dog or a cat or a chicken. And I hope not a rooster. Don't worry, I'm not serious. Doesn't bother me in the least. We have a rooster in our neighborhood. <laughs> but roosters are a bit of a trip, you know? And so if you go into churches around the country, what you're going to hear preached is the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and grace. And they won't require you to look at the fact of Abram owning animals. They won't force you to look at the fact that Abram had manservants and maidservants. They certainly won't talk to you about the sins of Sodom. Right? Right? And they're not going to ask you to consider the indigenous peoples that will be removed from Canaan when God fulfills the promised land promise. You'll just get the simple Jesus and the blood of the cross and grace. And people will get converted to that. 
And then, guess what? Those people who have been able to come to Jesus without facing the authority of God, and that's the big issue here. The big issue is we don't judge God. He judges us. What he does is right. What we do is wrong. All right? Our judgments are stupidity to him. That's what he says. Man's wisdom is his foolishness to God. His judgments are wisdom to us, but we call it foolishness. All right? Until we flip things upside down and begin to have God define us, begin to have God tell us what we are, begin to have God open up our thought processes so that we despair of wisdom. So that we despair of thinking we know what value of a human being is. And so we despair that we know anything about justice. Until this flip-flop happens, there is no conversion. There's no conversion. If you're converted simply to the blood of Jesus and grace, and you haven't walked through the authority of God over all creation, there's no conversion. Because your heart has not been opened up by the word of God. Your thinking process hasn't been opened up by the word of God. You're not made to be a superficial, one millimeter thick uh, Christian who can live in the world and then come and take the Lord's table and forget about all the rest because it doesn't matter. I'm just going to preach the cross, him crucified, and that's it. And so nobody teaches you what it is to care for God's earth. And so the world defines that to you. And so you have redwoods going to court, having somebody take the redwood as a person to court, okay, against society. And you don't know that the Bible says that man alone is made in the image of God. And then pretty soon the chimpanzees can talk. And, 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 and well, if they can talk, they can talk. They can use tools. Well, if they can use tools, they can use. But you don't know that the Bible says that man alone is the only creature who bears the image of God that God gave animals to us to eat. And so you go to restaurants and you're so proud of being a vegan. Because even though it's not a religion to you, it's a religion to you. You know? Because it's moral superiority. You know that, right? Have you ever met a vegan that wasn't morally superior? I mean, those of you that are vegans aren't laughing, but the rest of us are, right? I mean, every time you go in a restaurant, I always ask them, what's your favorite dish? And you know, when I have a waiter or a waitress, I know, I'm supposed to call them waiters, all right. Okay. When I, have a, when I have a waiter or a waiter, you know, all right, when I have a waiter or a waiter and they say, well, I, I don't know if I can recommend to you uh, because I don't eat meat, you know their life has been leading up to that moment. You know that's why they're a waiter or a waiter right? I hope today that I get some big ancient white-haired dude who gives me an opportunity to tell him I don't need meat. I'm going to whoop up on him. But it's, it's not a religion to me. But I hope I get to do it. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh. There 
was a restaurant back in Boulder when we lived in Boulder. It was called The Good Earth, right? You got an idea? <laughs> the Good Earth. And it was the place to eat. Rich people always took you to The Good Earth. You had these like 100-pound plants hanging right above your head. <laughs> and they were like huge spaces and huge plants, you know. And when I first started them, and my best friend Mitch was the guy that installed these, these living installations in these restaurants, you know. It was big at the time. And, uh, you know, and, the, and the, uh, the waiters, and you know, they would come up to you and they would tell you that, you know, they couldn't make any recommendations because they're vegans. You know, because they're, yeah, it's like, this is the world. And I guarantee you that Christians in a restaurant who have a waiter or waitress say to them that they're vegetarian, they can't make recommendations from the menu if you eat meat. I guarantee you that the Christians do not think in their brains that this poor person does not understand that God has made man alone in his image and has given animals to us for food. And the reason is because then we be gauche, we'd be committing a faux pas, right? We would be making a mistake that Facebook doesn't approve of, and that mistake would be what? Well, that mistake would be being judgmental against unbelievers. That would be taking our worldview and superimposing it upon people that don't have the same worldview. Do you see this? And so everything in our lives is carefully orchestrated in such a way as to get Christians to not think. We may not think. I know they tell you that they're teaching you to think, but they're not. They're teaching you, don't think. And don't think of Scripture if you do think. And don't let Scripture determine how you think, and don't even pay any attention to that God of the Old Testament who wiped out the indigenous people of Canaan. And don't think about him giving meat, and don't think about him having patriarchs, because that's father rule and that's gauche. And we just jump right over to the blood of Jesus and grace. And what is Christian faith if we've eviscerated it of absolutely everything but purely the blood of Jesus and grace? Why do we need grace? Why do we need the blood of Jesus? What do we need them for? We don't need them for homosexuality anymore. That's just a lifestyle option. So who needs the blood of Jesus because they're gay? Nobody. That's the point. Right? Right? Come on. Come on, you can say it. This is a church, and it's the Word of God we're under. Isn't the whole point of our culture today, you don't need the blood of Jesus for being gay? Now, I don't think I'm saying something that's radical. I think I'm saying something that's obvious. That's the point. Now, let me tell you, I need the blood of Jesus. But I need his blood for specific sins. My sins that I do. How do I know I do them? Because I read the Bible and I come under the word of God instead of standing in judgment over it. 
And the purpose of a preacher is to flip it all upside down so that you feel judged by Scripture and by Scripture's God so that you know you need the blood of Jesus. And if I don't flip your world upside down, I'm completely unfaithful to my job. Completely unfaithful. Every time you come to the Word of God, you should have a little bit of cringing in you. And the reason is, Scripture is God speaking. It's not a professor. It's not your wife. You won't have to worry about your wife anymore if you fear God. Brothers and sisters, we have to stop loving the world. The world is never going to approve of a man or woman of God. And if the world approves of you, that shows that you're not a man or woman of God. You cannot live close to Sodom and be of God and have Sodom's approval. You can't do it. Now, you can have the approval of your boss. You can have, have the approval of the police officer. You can have the approval of your professor. You can have the approval of discreet individuals who recognize in you a God-fearer, have a concept for it, and cut you slack to both fear God and to honor them. And we have all kinds of records of that in Scripture. We have Daniel. We have Joseph. Somehow, I can't figure it out, we have Abram. I mean, it just boggles my mind that he escaped that place without being executed. Let alone, apparently, they let him keep the wealth they had given him. You know, it's just like wacko, right? But if you have the approval of everybody in your life, including your mother-in-law and your wife, you better look and see, because the Bible, Jesus says, beware when all men speak well of you. And we don't live in a better, more hospitable time to Christian faith than Jesus did. We live in an evil day. And so here Abram is. Abram is a context. Abram is specifics. Abram is rich. Abram is rich in animals. Are you okay with that, or are you a vegan? Abram is rich in manservants and maidservants. You okay with that or are you egalitarian? Nobody should have the right to have any servants. Note, I didn't say slaves. And you say, well, I want to know precisely the nature of the relationship these men and women had to Abram. I want to know were they self-determined. I want to know what the terms of their engagement. I want to know were they day laborers, were they week laborers, or was this a lifetime contract? I want to know whether they got time and a half for working at Labor Day. It just says manservants and maidservants. And it's indication that God blessed him. And when we read a text like this and we see the specifics of the text... And the next thing we see is that he built an altar and he worshiped God there. And so we know that Abram not only 
had animals, he had manservants and maidservants, he had, he had precious financial assets, but we also know that he would not worship God at the altars of the Canaanites. He wouldn't do it. He didn't try to, like, get solar collectors and a sign like the Unitarian Church on the bypass, right? You've all seen it, you know? You've seen their sign. We're, we keep the earth. We're earth keepers. We have solar energy, you know? And so yesterday I was thinking, I want to put a sign like that up in front of our church. Because then we'd fit in, you know? We don't fit in, but we should be on the east side on the bypass, you know, near the temples of the assembly hall and the football stadium, you know? And this is what we do. Abram, what are you doing building a separate altar? They've already got a ton of altars there. Do you always have to be a separatist? Can't you put up a we, we have solar collectors? You know, can't you say we're earth keepers? Can't you, like, say we're a welcoming, affirming community? Because it's true. Just because we mean something different. I mean, you know, Bloomington, that United Church of Bloomington or whatever it is over there um, by the sports medicine place, you know, on 3rd Street, East 3rd, you know, welcoming, affirming community, you know, that church there that's got that sign out front. And so couldn't we have, couldn't we market ourselves in such a way that it's not clear that we don't worship the same God as the Canaanites worship? But here, here Abram is doing what? What is he doing? He, it says he built the altar. And it says that's where he called on the name of God. And what that means is he would not worship with any of the apparatus, any of the sacred apparatus of the pagans. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't confuse things. He would build a separate altar. And that's where he'd call on his God because his God had nothing to do with the God of Canaan. Now, how do we know that? Well, we have this conflict, and the conflict is between Abram and his nephew, but really not between them as much as between their herds. It was really the herds that were fighting, and because the herds were fighting, that meant that they didn't get the grass they needed, and so the herdsmen fought, because the herdsmen's job was to keep the herds from fighting. There wasn't enough grass for all of them. They needed a ton of grass to keep these herds eating. And so the herdsmen of Lot and the herdmen of Abram got into conflict. And it says in verse 6, The land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And then this little statement, The Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Okay, so here it is, the people of God fighting over how much grazing land there is for the flocks of both sides. And what does Abram do? He's a man of God, and he's dealing with conflict with his brother, his adoptive son, Lot. Their, their herdsmen are fighting, and what does he do? Well, if he's an engineer... He doesn't notice it. Because that's what engineers do, is they go through life without noticing anything going on around them except the things that don't matter. Now, is that an unfair characterization of engineers? I think it's pretty fair, right? I'm not an engineer, so what do I know, right? I'm not married to one either, right? 
But you know how fathers have an unbelievable ability of not seeing anything that's going on around them in a house? Oh, come on, for heaven's sakes. You all know this. I watch it. I watch, well, I watch it as, I watch it over there. You know, I remember this dude, he's got this iPhone in front of his face, and his kids are like little hellions around him. He's like, you know, as he walks out of church, you know, completely immersed in his iPhone. What did Abram do? Did Abram not notice what was going on? No, Abram noticed. And Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Isn't that a sweet thing? Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right, or if to the right, then I'll go to the left. Now listen, this is, this is drop-dead gorgeous. You have to see how beautiful this is on Abram's part. He's the father. Lot is the son. He sees what's going on, and he says to Lot, you take first dibs. I mean, how often have you seen your kids doing that when it comes to who sits next to the window? Oh, you're the younger brother. I'll sit in the middle. Right, Jonathan? (laughs) Oh, man. Abram is so sweet here. You know what it says in Scripture? It says this. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And mother and father, if you're raising children in such a way that you don't ever look at anything in their lives except just the blood of Jesus washing them, and grace. You miss out on opportunities when they're fighting over the window seat. And what is the chance that you're going to teach the godliness of Abram to your children? If you're oblivious to their conflict, you feel no need to resolve it, and you certainly don't resolve it by you taking the lower seat at the table. How many times, you know, I'll I'll see that something isn't on the table. You know, and we have standards for the table, you know, right? We have standards for setting the table, right? You all know this. And the standards include what? Well, start in our home, salt and pepper, okay? And then you move to napkins. And I'd like, please, for you not to judge whether I need all three utensils. I want them all, okay? I might want to use my spoon to eat pie and ice cream. Sorry. Some of you know you're supposed to use a fork for that. I've never understood that. It just seems stupid. Okay? And so you're the father of the house. You sit down and eat. You've got guests. And guess what? 
at that table is missing the salt and pepper or the napkins or one of the utensils. And so what do you do? You're the father. Well, what I do, I don't know about you, but I'm a man. And so whoever set the table, I tell her, would you please get the salt and pepper? And it's absolutely imperative for the order of creation that I do that. You know, I can't go get the salt and pepper. Are you kidding me? Why, pretty soon there'd be no stop signs. <laughs> there'd be no blood types. There'd be no assistant professors. There'd be no adjunct professors. Pretty soon there'd be no dental hygienists. There'd be no appointment times, there'd be no money, there'd be no, the world would, the world would explode if my eminence, me, myself, and I got up and got the salt and pepper. Right? Right? Now this isn't me. This is you. <laughs> and listen, you think about this in the fights we have in our marriages, where that man or that woman, and I'm telling you it's about 50% the man, 50% the woman, and I could go through this church and tell you which one it is pretty easily. The man or the woman is the specialist in what is logical and true, or spiritual, <laughs> <laughs> you know, how many husbands have been whooped to within an inch of their lives by their spiritual wives, right? But we don't do that. And so we absolutely insist on our prerogatives because we know that God's authority is at stake with us having our prerogatives defended. So whether it's an older brother with a younger brother, whether it's a brother with a sister, whether it's a husband with a wife, it's parents with children, it's elders with congregation, it's senior pastor with other pastors, it's, we just go through life assist, assist, insisting on our prerogatives. And that's precisely the opposite of what Abram did. Abram gave the choice to Lot. Listen, if you go through life protecting your superior reasoning faculties, your superior knowledge of God and his character, your male principle, your parental authority, your office at the church. If you go through life protecting your perfect principles that God has given you, guess what's going to happen? What's going to happen is people will submit to you, but people won't like you. And if you think that you don't have any of these because you're the low man on the totem pole, I have rarely met in America today people with such authority and such bitterness and such power as the people at the bottom of the totem pole today in America because they hold the perfect position of victim. And so they won't be ruled, they won't be led, they won't be told by anybody what to do. By nobody, <laughs> you know. They're not just Tammy, why not sit, sitting at home cooking cookies 
Nobody's a victim today, and everybody's a victim. Everybody has authority. Even the people who are at the very bottom of the totem pole in any hierarchy are absolutely adamant in protecting every single last, um, what, what is it, uh, not principle, but every single last uh, prerogative, every single dot the I and cross the T of their employment contract. And you know something? When you do that, the world might give in to you, but the world despises you. You know that. When you work for people, you're supposed to give yourself to them. You're not supposed to sit around enforcing contracts. When you have children and a wife, if you're having to tell them that you're the husband and that you're the father, very often you've utterly failed. Do you understand this? You're supposed to love the people that are under you. You're supposed to make their life such a joy that there's nothing they want more than to please you. That's how discipline works in a good home. Do you understand this? Sure, sometimes you have to spank. But generally, the more you have to spank, the less happy your home is. Not because spanking is bad, I'm not saying that, but because you haven't given it the joy of life. You haven't been baking cookies. You haven't been taking them fishing. You haven't sat down and talked to them and looked in their eye and asked them, what's bugging you? You know, what would you like to do tomorrow morning? You know, if you don't do this stuff, then you're going to be bad, 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 bad. Then your husband's going to come home and he's going to, he's going to, you better, and he goes, bad, 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 the whole home. That's all that home is. It's just one nasty after another. Why? Because everybody's, adamant about their own prerogatives. Everybody's enforcing the contracts. Everybody's living in a dot the I and cross the T world, and it's like boop, 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 whop, boop, 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 whop, you know. Don't lean. Stand up straight. Get your, what's that line? The, get that gate line, you know, and the little boys all have the and a little button-down khaki pants, and and this is Christian patriarchy. It's, it's ludicrous. Abram said what? Hey, Lot, we got problems. I see them. I'm not an engineer. I see them. Okay, got to do something. You choose where you want to go, and then I'll take the other place. Unbelievable. That's peacemaking. Now, here's the end. So Lot, how about this dude Lot? There's lots we could say about Lot. But let me just say this, all right? Look at Lot. This is what the Bible tells us about Lot. The Bible tells us, yeah, that's the reason I staple them together so I don't get lost. Okay. The Bible tells us that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan. It was well watered everywhere. In other words, Lot said, you know something? I'm not going to defer to my dad, my adoptive dad. I'm going to take what I want. He lifted up his eyes and he saw what he wanted. He saw the place where the waters watered the earth. He wasn't dependent on the rains. 
It was dependable, watered territory. It was like the Garden of Eden. It was well watered. And then there's this little editorial note, and the editorial note is what? Verse 10, this was, this was before that ancient patriarchal deity. <laughs> no, this is before the Lord, Yahweh, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now people, this is God in his word giving you something we call a clue. And the clue is that it was not good what Lot chose. The clue is that God worked through Abram to give Lot his choice. And the last thing in the world that Lot wanted at that moment was to have his choice. Why? Well, look at how the text ends. At the very end of the text, what does it say? Excuse me. Uh... It's not the end of the text. It must be 12. Yeah, it's 12. 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So Lot looks and he sees Bloomington and he's from Bedford. You know, he's from Bowling Green. He's, you know, he's from... He's from Newark, and he sees Manhattan. Or he's from Friendship, Iowa, and he sees Iowa City. And he gets his choice. He doesn't defer to his uncle. He goes off to Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's absolutely no question that what God is saying by recording this is that Lot made the bad choice. And the bad choice started when Lot was not as self-denying and self... uh, When Lot insisted upon making the choice that Abram gave him. If you were in that shoes and your father offered you to make the choice and you saw which was the good choice, can you imagine choosing that and making Abram go to the less desirable place? Can you imagine that? You can't imagine that. And yet that's what he did. He made the choice. He chose the place. It was like the Garden of Eden. Are you with me? And what did he do is he went off to the cities of wickedness. And that is the story of the entire world today. Everybody is leaving the rural area for the cities of wickedness where you can sin anonymously. What is the university? University is a place you can finally get away from your parents and sin the way you want. And the university will tell you that that's your right, that that's part of coming to a mature adulthood, and then the rest of your life you'll give your money to the IU Foundation as a memorial to to where you lost your virginity. What What happened in Sodom? What happened in Canaan? What happened was those who lived with Abram 
were protected by Abram's God. What were they protected from? They were protected from the religion and the demon gods of Canaan and Sodom and Gomorrah. Those who lived under the specificity, under the details of Abram and his godliness and God's covering over him, they escaped the wickedness and blood of Canaan. So when we jump all, burp right over all the details of Abram's life, we miss the point. And the point is that God protected those under Abram's authority from the demonic bloodthirst of Canaan. And you say, well, it doesn't say anything about that here. I say, well, it says very wicked. You know, it's not enough wicked. It's very wicked. Now, what was very wicked about Canaan? What was very wicked about Canaan, I told you last week, is that Canaan, as a part of its worship of its demon god Moloch, took the children, put them in the mouths of their idols, and had their children burned up. These are the indigenous people. This is the god of the indigenous people. This is what Lot chose. This is not hypothetical. This is not something that we can maintain neutrality about. And when people from heaven came to visit Sodom and Gomorrah, the men of Sodom were so proud and so fat and so rich that they came to the house that was providing coverage and stormed on the door and said, we're going to rape those men. We're going to rape them. And this is what all through history has been known as sodomy. And so what we want is we want Jesus and blood and grace. And we don't want to look at Canaan We don't want to look at Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't want to look at animals. We don't want to look at the distinction between those that lived under the coverage, the benevolent, beautiful, just, non-oppressive. Abram wasn't allowing any of his servants' children to be burned to Moloch. Abram wasn't going to abandon the people under his authority to the indigenous people of their bondage to a bloodthirsty God? Do you see? We have to flip upside down if we're going to worship God. We can't have it halfway. Come on. Give yourself to God. He is holy. He never requires you to kill an unborn child in your womb because it's a girl. And you only get to have one. And you want a boy. This is not God. God loves life. God loves babies. God makes the trees and the tomatoes, right now the tomatoes, fruitful. God loves life. 
God blesses us with wealth. God blesses us with children. God blesses us with marriage. God blesses us with good roommates when we're single. God blesses us with the blood of his son, with the body of his son. And we can't have this and and nip, 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 boop, 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 boop. You know, forget everything else because it's controversial. You can't come to the cross of Jesus Christ unless you come through every specific detail of Scripture. You can't judge God and accept his son. You can't refuse his authority and the authority of his word and accept his son. Unless a man is born again, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be a born again? How can an old man enter his mother's womb again? Jesus says, you're, you're a Presbyterian minister and you don't know these things? A man must be born again. You say, I've been baptized and I come to the Lord's Supper every week. You say, it doesn't matter. Have you been born again? Has the Holy Spirit changed you from darkness to light? Are you done with indigenous people blabbermouth stuff? Are you done with judging God about the specifics of every dispensation that he has given? Are you prepared to worship him as a woman? Instead of a person. As a man. Instead of a person. Are you prepared to worship him when he has said that he gives us all the animals to eat? Are you prepared to worship when when he says that the Canaanites have filled the cup of wickedness and they are to be wiped out? I have to end. I should have ended 20 minutes ago. But brothers and sisters, listen. Remember I told you, this world does not care about your soul. But you know you have a soul, and it's immortal. God made it. And it will one day return to God. And you will give an account for every idle word, every thought, every judgment. You will give an account for your soul. And if you care about your soul, you will begin to have God define your thoughts, your values, your commitments, your judgments. That's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to obey the gospel. It means to bring yourself to Jesus Christ, confessing that inside of you dwells no good thing. And to say to Jesus, Jesus, would you please change my way of thinking? Change my values, change my judgments, because I despair of myself. I've been a pawn in their hands. I've thought their thoughts. I've judged you and your church. I'm unwilling to come under the blood of Jesus in any specific. But I know that's wrong. And so I come to you, Jesus, and ask you, would you send your spirit 
I can't do it. Would you send your spirit and give me new birth? Would you born me again? And then I'll have, like a little baby, I'll have new eyes and, and a new nose, new ears, new gray matter, new words, new ways of walking, new ways of being a woman and a man. I'll just change everything. Anything less than that is not Christianity. Okay? And I want you to be Christians. I want you to stand before the judgment seat of God and say to him, I'm here dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I don't trust in my own judgments. I don't trust in my own wealth. I don't trust in my parents. I don't trust in my degree. I don't trust in anything but Jesus. And I have spent my life living under the authority of his word. And I know I've failed. Judge me. But I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's come to the Lord's table. Let's pray first. And I'm going to pray a prayer that is the prayer that is at the end of every one of Calvin's sermons. I mean, it, it, it varies a little bit from sermon to sermon, but this is basically the prayer that he ends each sermon when he preaches. And here it is. Now, let us bow before the majesty of our gracious God in acknowledgement of our faults, praying that he will be pleased to make us so aware of them that we will fight against them while asking him to forgive them so that we will continue seeking his help despite the fact that we are not what we should be and are far from doing everything we should. And at the same time, may he mortify us day by day so that we will withdraw from this world, from ourselves, and from all our vices, so that we will approach him more and more and conform ourselves to the righteousness he shows us and to which he daily invites us by his word. May he grant that grace not only to us but to all the peoples and nations on earth. Amen.